Good morning, church. Welcome, everybody, today. I want to welcome those who are joining us online as well. I know you're all bummed out today because you didn't win the $1.7 billion lottery last week. I know that, but I want to make you feel better. No, it doesn't always work out with a happy ending for these lottery winners. I got six examples here. Uh, here's a lottery winner that went through a divorce. Thomas and Denise Rossi were married 25 years without any issues. Then, out of the blue, she asked for a divorce. Little did her husband know that days before, she had won a $1.3 million lottery, a secret she kept throughout the divorce proceedings. And once the truth came out, a judge found her guilty of violating California's disclosure law and awarded the entire winnings to her ex-husband. Right, divorce. How about murder? At age 40, Abraham Shakespeare won a $30 million jackpot. After he won, he could not say no to those who asked for money, even letting homeless people into his home. That trust could have been his downfall after D.D. Moore befriended Abraham. He went missing. He was eventually found buried in a concrete slab at the home of Moore's boyfriend, and she was convicted of his murder. Now I have four other stories. I'm not going to read them all, but people who lost their winnings through gambling, to thieves, lawsuits, taxes, and crack cocaine. So I'd say we all just dodged a bullet last week. Praise God we did not win $1.7 billion. Now what's the point? Point is, why, it shouldn't be so hard to win the lottery. Winning the lottery should not be so hard. And likewise, spiritually speaking, we kind of won the spiritual lottery through the grace of God. We've been forgiven of our sins. Our hearts have been regenerated. We have the Holy Spirit. It should not be so hard now to be sanctified. Now what does the word sanctification mean? It literally means, sanctified means to be made holy. So this is what happens to us after we're saved, after we become Christians. It's part of the grace of God that he helps us in the progressive process of becoming holy. So we're being good. We're doing good things. We're becoming more like Christ. We're becoming more like God. Why is that so hard? And it is hard. But let me ask you, do you find it hard or easy to get up early in the morning and read your Bible and pray every day? Do you, you find it hard or easy if maybe Sunday's your only day off and you get up and you come to church on Sunday? Is it hard or easy to give your money away? Is it hard or easy to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? Do you find it hard or easy to forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Why is sin so still tempting to us? Why do we still have habits and hang-ups and maybe even sinful addictions. Why is it so hard to break those? Why is sanctification so hard? Well, that's the question that we ended with last week and last week's message, and it's the question that we're starting with today. So I've got a little outline on your back of your bulletin where you're going to ask and answer two questions. Number one, why is sanctification so hard? Now I'm going to read a number of scriptures, a number of verses right now. We're going to put them up here on the screen as I read them, about 11 verses kind of a long passage. I don't normally read a passage quite this long, but I think it's important to get all these verses out here on the table, Romans 7, verses 14 and following from the Apostle Paul. The answer to this question, why is sanctification so hard? It's a one-word answer. And on the back of your bulletin, I even gave you the first letter. And as we go through these verses, see if you can pick it out, because I tell you, you don't need a Bible college degree or a seminary degree or to know the Greek language to be able to figure this out, what Paul is talking about here. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 7, Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, 
but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. All right, so what's the one word problem here? Flesh. The problem is flesh. So the way salvation works, the grace of God, God redeems us. He redeems our spirit. He makes our hearts new. We call this regeneration. Gives us a new heart. Redeems our spirit, but not our bodies. Our bodies are not redeemed until when? Until Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, if we're still alive, we'll meet him in the air, we'll be transformed, or if we've died, we'll be resurrected from the grave, and our bodies will be reconstituted with new glorious bodies. That's when our bodies are redeemed. But in the meantime, we're stuck with these. And these bodies of flesh are riddled with sin. They're still infected with sin. That sin in our flesh is at war against our spirit. Paul calls it the inner man or in his mind. He wants to do what's right, but his body is pulling him in the other direction. And I went to the dentist a while back and I had a crown that had come off a molar. And I was asking him about it. And he says, well, you know, that tooth is infected. It really needs to come out. I'm surprised you don't feel any pain. I said, well, I don't know why, but I don't feel any pain. He said, well, it really needs to come out. And I said, well, what if I just don't do anything? Because that's the way I think. I'm always trying to save a buck. And I said, what if I just don't do anything? He said, well, it might be, you know, it might not get any worse for a, a while, but your body is having to fight that infection, whether you realize it or not. Energy and resources in your body are constantly fighting that infection. And likewise, our bodies, our sin is like an infection in our bodies, and resources and energy are constantly going to fight against this sinful tendency that we have, not to mention Satan and uh, spiritual warfare and those kinds of things. So that is always there. Now you say, Steve, I mean, what, where's the encouragement in that? I didn't feel that great when I got here today, and now you tell me I'm always going to be in this kind of civil war. It's always going to be hard. Well, <clears throat> well, here's part of the encouragement. I think it is somewhat encouraging to know that we're not alone, that it's not just you. <laughs> you know, it's not just you. Because sometimes we look around and we see the Christians who seem to have it all together and we go on Facebook and look at people's Facebook page and they got the highlight reel of their life up there and everything's wonderful and their family is so marvelous. And we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my dysfunctional family? And we start to think, am I the only one here who's really struggling? And the answer to that is, no, you are not. This is, a, this is the human predicament. We all struggle with this. The elders in this church struggle with the flesh. The deacons do. The, the ministers on staff do. The little blue-haired church ladies here struggle with the flesh. We all do this. This is the human predicament. So part of what's encouraging here is you are not alone in struggling. 
You know, there have been some super spiritual Christians who have looked at this passage that we just read from Paul, and it is so transparent, humble, and earthy. They say, well, this must be Paul in his pre-Christian experience. This can't be Paul after he's a Christian. He wouldn't struggle like this with sin. It just sounds too sinful, but it's not. This is Paul in the midst of his Christian experience. Before he was a Christian, he was self-righteous. He said, I, know, I, I kept the law perfectly. And that, he wasn't struggling before he was a Christian. Afterwards, he became familiar with sin. And this harmonizes with Paul's description of himself and other places. Ephesians 3.8, Paul says, I'm the least deserving of all God's people. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. Not I was. I am. He had, a, he had a awareness of his own sinfulness and his own struggle. In fact, if you ever hear a preacher, a pastor, a minister, a priest, some blow-dried, coiffed, uh, you know, televangelist who gets up, or an author who says they've reached a stage or a plateau where they no longer struggle with sin or struggle with the flesh, your spidey sense should start tingling. Right? The red flags should go up. What does the Bible say about that? John writes, 1 John 1, 8, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And the context there is John is basically saying, just don't go there. Don't claim you're not struggling. Don't claim it's not hard. Don't claim that you know, you're not struggling with the flesh like everybody else does. Just don't. <laughs> we are. Okay. So, one of two questions. Why is sanctification so hard? Our walk with the Lord? Because we're still in the flesh. Second question. Why is sanctification sometimes harder than it needs to be? Okay, so we'll, we'll admit, having said that it's hard, it is sometimes harder than it needs to be. We don't, we don't need to make it any harder on ourselves than it already is. So I've got a three-part answer to this question. They all have to do with the Holy Spirit. Answer number one, it's sometimes sanctification, sometimes harder than it needs to be because of ignorance of the Holy Spirit. Ignorance of the Holy Spirit. Now we've gone, we're shifting from chapter 7 to chapter 8, and chapter 8 of Paul is all about being led by the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, as we've discussed in previous messages in this sermon series, the Amazing Grace sermon series, sin results in a double curse in our lives. And the grace of God, the remedy is a double cure. It's a double cure for the double curse. So the consequences of sin are, first of all, guilt. We're guilty of breaking God's law. So we come under condemnation and the penalty of eternal death. That's curse number one. The second curse or consequence of sin is corruption or sickness. Our hearts are corrupted. We cannot obey God's, God's will and God's law. So that's the double curse of sin. Now, when the grace of God comes along, the grace of God has a double cure. The first cure has to do with our guilt, and that's forgiveness or justification. Our sin is forgiven. Jesus takes that eternal penalty upon himself on the cross in our place. So our sins are washed away, so we're forgiven. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for you. No penalty for you. No hell for you. Praise God. 
That is the most important part. You know, that's very important. We're joyful and happy about that. The second cure of grace has to do with healing, healing our corruption and our sin sickness. It regenerates our hearts. It's what the Bible calls being born again, our hearts being regenerated, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life? All right, number one, it is not revelation. It's not revelation. It's not God is revealing, the Holy Spirit revealing new truth to us. In John chapter 16, Jesus said to his apostles, the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. Too many take that out of context and try to apply it to non-apostles. This was the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and prophets was revelation. He revealed truth to them. They wrote it down for us in the written scriptures. We have the Bible. That's our revelation from God. It is not so that we can speak in tongues and work miracles. This was the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the apostles and prophets to confirm the revelation that they were delivering to the people. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit for us as Christians today can be summed up in one word. And that's the word power. It's power. Because God never intended us to take this journey of sanctification into holiness by our own sheer willpower and effort alone. This is why it's harder than it needs to be for some people. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us an internal source of power to help us to be good. Romans 8, 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, that's true about prayer but it is a general principle of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are weak. Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And the Holy Spirit is in there to help us in all aspects of our weakness. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that God will empower you with inner strength through His Spirit. Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now I say... One of the ways it's harder for us than it needs to be is ignorance of the Holy Spirit. If we're not aware that we have the Holy Spirit, if we're not aware of what His purpose is in us, we will miss this power. It is a power in order to activate it in part. We have to know it's there, be aware of it, affirm it, and trust in it. Just like justification and forgiveness is activated by faith. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this healing that takes place, is activated by faith. Wouldn't it have been a tragedy if Clark Kent, you know Clark Kent, toward the end of his life, he's, uh, he's only got a few days left, and he's laying there on his sick bed, Clark Kent, and looks down and says, hey, what's this big S on my chest? What's that all about? What's that stand for? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if Clark Kent was Superman and never knew that he had been Superman? If he never knew, when his whole life, never knowing, he had these wonderful superpowers that were given to him so he could be good and help other people. What a tragedy. Well, likewise, that can happen to a Christian. A Christian could go, conceivably, their whole life unaware that God had given them the Holy Spirit to be an internal source of power to help them in sanctification. If they don't know it, they're not aware of it. They can't believe it, trust in it, claim it, submit to it. So ignorance of the Holy Spirit makes it harder than it needs to be. Number two, absence of the Holy Spirit. Absence of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38. Repent, Peter preaching here, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.32, the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Acts 19.2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul talking to some Ephesian believers. They answered, no. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Now I'm just going to touch on this very quickly and move on because 95% of us, we've already got this. But when is the grace, the saving grace of God applied to us? What is the occasion of our salvation? It's our baptism. So when you are baptized into Christ, that's when God applies the double cure of grace to you. That at your baptism is the occasion. It's when God washes away your sin. He forgives your sin and justifies you. That's the first part of the cure. And it is also when you receive the Holy Spirit. That's why when the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 19 encountered some Ephesian believers, and he says, do you have the Holy Spirit? And they said, no, we never heard of the Holy Spirit. He immediately asked, what baptism did you receive? Because baptism is when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's when he comes. It's when he indwells us. Now, unfortunately, ever since a Swiss theologian named Huldrych Zwingli in the 16th century began teaching that water baptism is totally divorced and anything that has to do with salvation or forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, or the grace of God, then we got a bunch of believers walking around who've never been baptized. Okay, so... We got to move past that. Who are you going to believe? Holdrick Zwingli or the Apostle Paul? Holdrick Zwingli or the Apostle Peter? The pastor or the priest or ever taught to you or the Word of God where Peter says, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Seven Jewish brothers. In Acts chapter 19, we're going around trying to cast demons out of people. These guys, these Jewish exorcists were always looking for some magical word formula that would give them power over demons. They observed that the apostle Paul was very effective casting demons out of people by saying, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out. So they said, all right, that's a pretty powerful formula there. We're going to try that. So they, the next demon-possessed man they encountered, uh, they said, they're they all sons of one father, Sceva, and these seven men said to this demon-possessed man, uh, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, to come out. The demon within the man responded to them. I always imagine how he sounded. It must have been like Darth Vader, you know. <sighs> So, and what he said was, the demon responded and said, well, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? And that one man jumped on those seven brothers and gave them a beat down and they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Moral of the story is do not engage in spiritual warfare without the power. You got to have the power. And I'm not saying we're casting demons out of people. We're all engaged in spiritual warfare Spiritual forces are attacking us all the time. We're dealing with the flesh. We, if we do not have the Holy Spirit, it's not going to end well for us. We must have the power. So if you haven't been baptized, and we're actually setting up the dunk tank tonight, right? At uh, Trunk or Treat. I'd be glad for you to be the first person ever baptized in a dunk tank. Come on, 6 o'clock tonight. We'll get that taken care of. All right. Ignorance of the Holy Spirit, absence of the Holy Spirit, and then thirdly and finally, neglect. Why is it harder than it needs to be? Neglect of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Got to take our medicine. We got to take our medicine. 
If you get a bacterial infection, the doctor's going to give you an antibiotic and you've got to take it to get better. If you feel the flu coming on, take the Tamiflu. It'll shorten it make it less severe. Or even better yet, get the shot and avoid the flu. We've got to take our medicine. I was talking to a friend of mine in recovery one time. He said, Steve, we addicts have to take our medicine. He was talking about the 12 steps. You know, admit, admit our helplessness, admit that we need God, uh, moral inventory, share with others. That's the medicine. But we need to take our medicine too, and the Holy Spirit is our medicine. We need to drink deeply of the Holy Spirit. We can't just know he's there. We have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and submit to the Holy Spirit so that we can be led by the Holy Spirit. A while back, I was getting on my motorcycle to come to work. That's right. I ride a motorcycle. I know my cool factor just went up by tenfold, right? So I'm getting on my motorcycle. I, I roll it out of the garage and down the driveway before I crank it up, about halfway down the driveway. My driveway like, is like yours, probably got a little incline on it. And I went to crank it up, and the battery was dead. So now it's a Honda Magna 750. It weighs 550 pounds. I can't leave it in the driveway. I've got to push it back up into the garage before I can leave. Man pushing 550-pound motorcycle up the driveway into the garage, throwing my back out. I'm grunting and groaning. This thing is hard work. Now, it still rolls, but it is nothing like when you got the engine cranked on, you got all those horses underneath it, and you're just riding it. Big difference. Likewise, I wonder if our Christian journey is not often like riding, trying to ride a motorcycle that doesn't have the engine turned on. I mean, it'll move, and we can make some progress, but we're just going to be grinding it out, and we're going to get so tired and worn out. I'm going to flip that switch. We've got to turn on the engine and the power, the motor. We've got to get those horses working on our behalf, and that power is the Holy Spirit. And all that begs the question then. All right, Steve, I believe you. I've got the Holy Spirit. I want to yield to the Holy Spirit. I want to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I want to, whatever he's got for me, I want it. How do you do that? How do you tap in to that? So that's what we're going to be talking about in this next sermon series in November. And how, what are the ways in which we cooperate with the Holy Spirit so we're not trying to be holy and good just in our own willpower and our own effort. We're riding along. And I want you in with the Holy Spirit. Envision this. Envision a time where you are at peace with God. You're at peace with God. Even if these problems and our circumstances have not all been resolved, we found a place of peace independent of that. And we're better today than we were yesterday, and we know we're not where we need to be yet, but we're better than we were yesterday, and we're making progress, and we're following the lead of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We have a peace about that and a rest about that. And the sin in our lives is the embarrassing exception rather than the humiliating rule. That's where we want to get to. That's where God can take us. That's how the Holy Spirit can help us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace in all its many aspects. We thank you that Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, the, the Romans, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Thessalonians, so that they would know that there is a Holy Spirit and how he works, and that that's there for us too. So we can know there's a Holy Spirit. He's helping us. He's our power. This is the aspect of grace we don't always talk about, but we need so much day by day by day. Strengthen us with power in our inner man through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.